The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus van Staden. Good afternoon. Kobus, we are about to put a bow on our 12th year of doing this podcast. This is the last show of 2022. Normally, for our loyal listeners over the years, the last show of the year, we do our year in review, our year preview show, where we go through three of our favorite topics of the year, and then we look forward with one topic. We're going to mix it up this year just because you can't do the same thing, Kobus, year in and year out without becoming predictable and boring. So this year, we thought we would invite our good friend Jude Moore from the Center for Global Development in Washington to help us figure out some of the bigger pictures and some of the bigger trends that have been going on. But before we get to Jude, what I'd like to do, Kobus, is kind of have you reflect a little bit on this year. What's your big takeaway from China-Africa relations in 2022? I think the one big takeaway, and this is going to sound like a whiff, but it is actually what I believe, is that 2022 was the year when you started seeing big kind of tectonic plates moving, which will kick off changes that we will really only see kind of like taking place throughout this coming decade. Uh, particularly, it really kind of set in motion a few kind of like large issues, you know, like that we'll discuss. Particularly, I think a new kind of division within the field of development itself that I think is going to throw up a lot of kind of interesting and really complicated challenges for China, for Western countries, and for Africa, I think coming over the next few years. You know, kind of as a certain, certain of the certainties that we saw that characterized the Chinese engagement with Africa over the last 10 years have started to fall away. And at the same time, China is re-emerging you know, after this big COVID shutdown in a way that we don't know what we're going to be seeing. You know, kind of my feeling was very strongly that COVID was in a weird way, that kind of intermission in a play, you know, kind of where the curtains were closed and the set was being rearranged and now the curtains are opening and we're still going to see what that's going to look like. So I think, you know, in a lot of ways, like we're seeing small developments that could reverberate kind of in large ways through the next few years. Okay, so not any one big thing, but a number of small things for you are basically your story of the year. Pretty much, yeah. Okay, Jude, now we're going to come to you. Jude Moore, for regular listeners of the show, he's an old friend of ours. He's one of the smartest guys in Washington who follows African affairs and has a deep background in what the Chinese have been doing on the continent for the past 10, 15 years. He's the former public works minister of Liberia, now a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington. Jude, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Kobus. It's a pleasure to be back here. I have history here. It was actually your show that sort of launched my China-Africa career. 
really, because, you know, I have been talking about it a bit, you know, but very few people actually knew about what I was talking about. And then you invited me on the show. And a lot of people listened to that show. And basically, the rest that they say is history. So it's a pleasure to be back here. And thanks. for it, That was a long time ago. That was a very long time ago. So we are humbled that we take any credit for your success. And really, you are one of the go-to guys for people to help us what's going on in this space. And this is a space that has been changing radically over the years, especially this past year. Before we get into specifically the China-Africa issues, which we'd like to devote most of our show to, you were in Washington last week. You were central in the events that took place at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. You hosted an event with the Semaphore team, you know, on the sidelines of the summit. You often share my skepticism about the U.S. ability to deliver on their promises, whether it was B3W or the PGII or any of the promises that have been made over the past 10 years regarding Africa. You went into the summit, you said, feeling a little bit skeptical, which was comforting to me because that means the world is still the way it should be. And then I read in the newspaper that you're really optimistic. So you had a change of art. Tell us, you know, on the ground, what happened? Thank you, Erica and Kobus. And you're right. I did a bunch of background interviews with different news organizations. And I told them that the best we can get out of this is that the summit was going to look very much like the EU-Africa summit, where we were going to see a simple a repackaging experience, relabeling of previous commitments, and, you know, it's just ticking a box. And then we went into this thing and we're, you know, pleasantly surprised. But part of that was sort of a reassessment of what all of this stuff means. And so I came out of it way more optimistic than I went in. And I would like to start first, why? Why am I optimistic about the relationship? The first thing is, I tried to set it within the context of what is happening here. A few years ago, the former Defense Secretary Esper, in his book, noted that the Trump administration, well, President Trump, had considered shutting down every American embassy on the continent and bringing the people home because he felt like the continent wasn't of much value. There were reports that the president had to use really derogatory words in describing the continent. And so we go from an American president considering shutting down every embassy on the continent to an American president shutting down the downtown Washington, D.C. to host the same African presidents. There was a shift in the tenor of the relationship. That was the first thing. Well, one of the things people have to realize, at least for someone who's been in politics, that it's not always just substance. In fact, in some instances, Perception trumps substance. So the shift in perception is important for us as Africans and how we're perceived here in Washington. The second thing is, for years, U.S. policy, foreign policy, I would say before September 11 was largely two legs of the stool, right? It was defense, it was diplomacy. And then after September 11th, you know, development became the third leg and it became a really important thing. And so most times, the prism through which the U.S. and the West perceived and interacted with Africa was one was threat-based. Africa was either a source of some threat that could, you know, menace their society, their economies. Think of the embassy bombings in Tanzania and Kenya. Think of HIV AIDS. Think of Ebola. And the second was development. So it was either the Defense Department that was leading the effort on the continent or it was USAID. And Africans have been arguing, look, it can't be that two-dimensional. Africa is a place to do business. We want more 
economic exchanges between us. We want to change the tenor of the relationship so that it's not just seeing Africans as beneficiaries you know, of, of grants, of aid. We want to do business. An entire day, in fact, the dominant theme here in Washington was about that. How can we get American companies to make investments in Africa? And at the end of that day, we saw $15 billion. Now, when all of that gets done, it's not the issue. But here we are now. The conversation was not about, oh, what aid can we give to Africa? Oh, what threats are emerging from Africa? It was Africa as a place to do business. And American companies are making significant bets on the continent. So I think for those who have wanted to shift in the conversation, this summit was the beginning of that. And that's why I'm cautiously optimistic about where the relationship goes from here. And today, in your interactions with African stakeholders in relation to the summit, did you get a feeling that there was fresh thinking on the African side, like in terms of what they would like to get and like what their kind of plans are for future development? Absolutely. It was a pleasant surprise. It was sort of a disappointment to us in the think tank space, but it was heartening if you were in Africa. So one of the things that happened was a lot of African delegations didn't do a lot of the think tank circuits they ended up having business meetings instead, right? So instead of going to Center for Global Development or going to the Carnegie Endowment or going to Brookings and give a speech there and policy people ask you questions, they hosted American private sector. People interested in critical minerals, people interested in fintech, people interested in fossil fuels. They were having more business meetings then. And that was a shift. It felt as if there had been some sort of memo that was shared with African delegations that we are going to make the most out of this. And so for me, that shift, seeing that was very, very encouraging. And the conversation wasn't about aid. I mean, they came in with that clear talking point. First, they wanted something done about the U.S. using its position and status in the international financial system, especially with the IMF and special drawing rights. There is this thing that, you know, most of the countries that benefited from SDRs don't really need it but the countries that need it the most got the least. So the U.S. needs to be able to do something about that. The second was they wanted AGOA, either in its current form or some version, to be reauthorized when this ends. And I think that consistency in the talking points is, is, is different, but it is in line with what we've seen from Africans this year, right? Eric, you asked Cobus at the beginning of the conversation, you know, what stands out? For me, what stands out for Africans is holding the line. You know, whether it was their view on Russia and Ukraine and a refusal to simply toe the Western line, you know, and saying, listen, we have things here and not blanket condemnation of Russia. It wasn't sort of an endorsement of what Russia was doing, but it was for me in the first time, at least in a long time, that I've seen Africans assert some sort of autonomy on their foreign policy. And so we saw a continuation of that coming here, of saying and openly criticizing the Americans there is this act that's going through the Congress about countering malign Russian activity in Africa, about sort of targets African actors. You know, Maki Sal has been against that. He came here and made a speech against that. So what we're seeing, uh, you know, maybe it's because of COVID, maybe it's because of all of the things that's happened in last year, is a, a reemergence of sort of assertiveness on the part of African actors. And for me, that was really, really welcome. I guess what surprises me is that you and people like Aubrey Ruby at the Atlantic Council and even Judd Deverman, who's at the National Security Council now, but before he was at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a lot of folks that you in the Africa policy space have been talking to corporates for years to try to get them 
to get engaged with Africa. And when Africa was in the Africa rising period, when it was, you know, they were making the cover of The Economist and it was all happy sunshine and rainbows, it was very difficult to get them in. I'm talking to you now less than a week after Fitch downgraded Kenya, after we have a debt crisis in a number of countries, coups have taken over five or six countries in the Sahel. We have a political crisis in South Africa. I mean, the list of challenging times facing African countries is long and growing. And yet this is the time when American companies who are historically very risk averse decide that they want to get into the market. What were people telling you about what changed? Well, we know what changed, Eric. So in the marketplace for external actors in the continent, it has gotten very competitive. 20 years ago, you know, the United States and Europe were basically the only game in town. And so, for example, if a country got sidelined by the U.S. or Europe, you were done. There were no actors you could engage. You know, and most times when people think about this, everybody focuses on China. That's a big part of it. And we can talk about that. I mean, Visa committed a billion dollars over five years. Are they thinking about China, too, in, in, in West Africa? So there are, no, there are a number of reasons that the first is, I think, definitely China plays such a really, really big role because the conversation has been cast in such as any gain for China is perceived as a loss for the United States. That's one. Number two, demographics definitely play a role here. So in the visa VP, whoever announced it actually said this, that this is actually a business initiative. Like if you think about it, your profits are stalled in the developed markets and it's not as if things are going to get any better. Look, Eric, after 2035, the working age population across the industrialized world is going to collapse. Now, there are two places where we're still going to see that growth happening is in India or in Africa. Right. And so if you're going to make some sort of five billion dollars, it's a big amount of money, but for Visa, how big is that, right? But so you're going to make some sort of bet in Africa. The second thing you have to take into account is, and Blinken said this in his unveiling or launching of the Africa policy, 30% of critical minerals are in Africa, but the value chain of critical minerals is dominated by the Chinese. So if the U.S. economy is going to do that, then you need to be able to access those. And all of a sudden, Africa seems like an attractive proposition the final thing is when risk is relative, all right? So if there is no war in Ukraine, if China is in a massive rising power, then risk in Africa look very, very bad. But if there is a war in Ukraine, a war in Europe for the first time since, well, I, I don't know when, and a very big war that's going to continue for a while, all of a sudden, what used to look risky before, like perception has changed concerning that. And then the final thing I would say is that the U.S. government, when you notice there were more than 14 federal agencies that were involved in this, and each of them were given responsibilities over certain things. So whether it was the USDFC or the U.S. Exim, this attempt by the U.S. government to use public money to de-risk projects, to encourage American firms to be able to do that, I think played a significant role in changing threat perception or risk perception of the continent. And do you think that we would be here today without the Chinese, that any of these federal agencies would be putting public money on the line for Africa without the Chinese? Without China's rise, without this unprecedented increase in Chinese influence on the continent, without Gallup, without Afrobarometer tracking over decades, China's rise in the eyes of Africans. You know, when you ask Africans every three years, or every five years, who has the most influence in your life? You see China come from nothing to basically be neck and neck with the United States now. At, all, at some point, and then you have 
you know, U.S. military leaders. Now, we, we said, I said this from the beginning, that a dominant actor for the United States on the continent has been the State Department, the Defense Department, and then you have uh, USAID development. And you have commanders of the U.S. Africa Command saying that, you know, China has chosen to compete in Africa and they're competing in, you know, non-traditional ways. They're building rail, they're building dual-use civilian infrastructure and ports, like, you know, giving them access to this. So if you're an American and you're looking at threats around the world, you're seeing, look, we're losing, you know, I mean, that's the way they perceive it. We're losing in Africa. And I think, you know, China, for us Africans, we have to be grateful for the Chinese and the amount of risks the Chinese were willing to take in Africa. The Chinese perception of risk in Africa has really altered the game because that is what is B3W, PGII, Global Gateway are all in response to BRI. They're seeking some sort of response to BRI. And so, no, none of this happens. You know, if you talk to the Americans, they're going to say to you, oh, we've always valued our relationship with Africa, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I'm very, very skeptical that we're in this position and having this conversation without the rise of the Chinese. And, like, what kind of messages do you think China is taking from the summit? I think China, especially official China, simply repeated normal talking points that, you know, first the U.S. is basically disrupting the international system, trying to make everything about competition. China has never been about competition in its relationship with Africa. China has this long-standing relationship through wheel and war with the African counterparts. The U.S. is now having abandoned the continent for a long time, or simply coming back and trying to disrupt Africa's relationship with China. You're going to hear, hear more and more of that. However, if I'm Chinese, I will sit up a bit. So first, it's this thing about, you know, one of the things that I said to the Washington Post was, if I were the U.S. and planned this, I'll be happy. I'll think it's a success. Whether these commitments are met, whether all of these newly introduced initiatives actually happen, that's for another day. But then the U.S. took one step further and appointed Johnny Carson to deliver this. Now, in some circles here in Washington, they're like, well, Johnny Carson is like, you know, retired, he's elderly, like, you know, why? But that doesn't bother me. Because for one thing, Johnny Carson doesn't have to fight for credibility on the continent. He's a known quantity on the continent and has credibility here in Washington. But you also have to remember, beginning next year, we have a Republican House. You need an actor who can go to Congress and have credibility with them, even if it is the Republicans. And so what it says to me, though, is that the bench of Africa policy in the U.S. is pretty thin. If you keep going back, uh, you know, Ambassador Carson retired. If you bring him out of retirement to be able to do this, what does this say about how you've built up your cadre of political actors here in Washington who can do credible diplomacy on your behalf in Africa? Yeah, but I also got into a squabble today on Twitter with some folks about Carson. I'm not a huge fan of Johnny Carson because I think, again, he's, you know, he's from a different era. He, he's a cold warrior. So I don't think he's the right person because of that. But at the end of the day, too, I know out here in Asia, you don't send junior diplomats to China. You don't send junior diplomats to the Middle East and you don't send junior diplomats to Africa. And the fact that he's an elder I think carries an enormous amount of weight, and I think there's a lot of respect that's due to him, especially in Africa. So sending someone like that with his experience, he brings gravitas to the role. And he can have an army of 25-year-olds around him who can tap into the youth issues, but the fact that he's going to open the conversation, this is, again, why John Kerry's important as well. You know, an old guy like this carries weight in a lot of these countries, and I, I don't know if that's unappreciated at all. 
This is true. I mean, and just think about how U.S. diplomacy is done. Korea Foreign Service officers get sent to difficult places where you actually have to do diplomacy. And then political uh, campaign supporters get sent to Europe so that they can host parties, right? In places that are difficult, you normally send your most seasoned diplomats in those places. And I can imagine, you know, Johnny Carson shows up to talk to Museveni. They're talking as equals. You don't deal with Africa in a way you hope it would be. You deal with Africa in a way it is. And so that's why I think, yes, you know, having to bring him out. And, and you know, I've had the pleasure of actually having a lot of conversations with him and be, uh, appearing with him. And I think we're going to be surprised in, in terms of what this time, his time out of office over the last few years has meant. So back to our main question, Eric, I think if you let me for just like a minute, I want to make points here. And I feel like I can make this point because I'm African. And I hope over the last few years, over my career, I've established that what is most important to me is what benefits the continent. You know, when I do these talks, I say, you know, I hope China succeeds in Africa. I hope the U.S. succeeds in Africa, but that's not my concern. My concern is what benefits the continent. And I think it's important for us, especially African audiences and people listening to this is like, it is not China's responsibility to develop Africa. It is not the U.S.'s responsibility to develop Africa. It is our leaders' responsibility to develop Africa. What we need are partners who help us get to that point. One of the reasons Rwanda stands out in development circles is the Rwandans are really clear about what they want and what they don't want. The Rwandans are really, really clear about what they will accept and what they want. And if Rwandans experiences anything, there is a lot of autonomy in your foreign policy. For a country as dependent on aid to be as autonomous as Rwanda is, it means that there's wiggle room. I'll give you an example. The Rwandan president comes to Washington and says, nobody's going to bully me into releasing Paul Rusesabagina. The only way he gets released, maybe I'll get invaded. But the U.S. is not... Remind us who that is again. This is the Hotel Rwanda a guy, this is the famous guy who got like highest honors here in the U.S. as actually a U.S. resident. I don't even know if he's a U.S. citizen, but I know he's a U.S. resident. And if you're a U.S. resident out of this country, you get the same kinds of protections that U.S. citizens get, right? And here's a U.S. resident who was brought to Rwanda to extraordinary rendition, right? And the Rwandan president comes here. My point isn't that you should, you know, poke the U.S. or anything. I'm saying that there is a significant amount of room for autonomy in foreign policy for African governments. We need to do that. We need to come to our partners. Think about it, Eric. At 49 African delegations came to Washington. It was Washington's initiative. We should not forget that U.S. Africa policy has one primary goal, is maximizing American interests, right? Then they tried to do it in such a way so that the Africans get something out of it. But if push comes to shove, they're in Africa to advance American interests. And Africans ought to take this. We ought to be advancing African interests. So what would I suggest? We should put on the table for the State Department that the next U.S.-Africa summit is going to be in Addis, right? We invite them to Addis. We shouldn't wait for them to tell us, oh, when are we going to do it? And we all come to Washington again. There is no reason. TICAT goes between Japan and Africa. FOCAT goes between China and Africa. There is no reason why we should wait for the Americans to invite us here. Now, the good thing for me is, even in the American rhetoric, they were saying that the $55 billion is geared to support the initiatives, the priorities of Africa, Agenda 2063. This is good. But so, I coming out of this, I was thinking to myself, like, you know what? 
this is, we, we've seen some really good things here. On the last day, on Friday, I hosted Scott Nathan from the USDFC and Tara Nathan and EVP at, at MasterCard because they were doing a $50 million expansion in their community pass uh, thing. It was, it was a really good conversation. And he told me that based on what DFC inherited from OPEC and the investments they've made, their total portfolio in Africa now is $11 billion. But that's about $2 billion in the last year alone. And they are now seeking ways to do it faster and to do more. I mean, the, you're sitting here thinking to yourself, wait, what place are we talking about again? You know, And so that's why I stepped away from this thinking to myself, you know what? Not only did they make these commitments, not only is the conversation around business deals, not only did they hire Johnny Carson, but for Prosper Africa, Whitney Schneiderman was uh, appointed. You know, before we came here and populated this space, Africa policy in Washington was Whitney. Like, you know, people like he, he was at the Brookings Institution, right? That's right. But he's also, he has experience working in the U.S. government. And Whitney is a credible actor, again, among African, you know, interlocutors. So I think when... And, and what's Whitney going to be doing? He's going to be heading Prosper Africa. Okay, okay. Yeah, he's going to be heading Prosper Africa. So I think what Biden says, you know, the, Af um, the U.S. is all in on Africa's future. Maybe that's rhetoric so the Africans can clap. But I, I feel like they're doing their best to align that rhetoric with substance. I would say, Eric and Kobus, that over the last year, over the last nine months, that we've seen a really big attempt by the U.S. to change their relationship with Africa, right? So uh, Blinken comes to Nigeria. He makes that speech. We want a partnership of equals. He comes to Pretoria. He unveils this in August. Then Biden comes out and says, we want Africa to become a member of the G20. We support Africa's membership of the G20 and a seat at the UN Security Council. It's like they're doing everything they can to be able to back the rhetoric that they're looking for a different kind of partnership in Africa. You can't help but be optimistic about this. Right? Okay, okay. So, Kobus, <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot now. It's your turn to be in the hot seat, Kobus, because last week <laughs> you said you were unimpressed, I think was the word that you said. Or was that was that the word you said? No, I, I said in, in lots of ways it's very encouraging, and I think it renewed the relationship, but I didn't necessarily think it revolutionized the relationship. Revolutionized. Okay, now listening to Jude. Listening to Jude and all the things that he said for the past half hour now, are you rethinking some of your assessment of the summit? Yes, to a certain extent. I think, um, you know, kind of like Jude, you you're very you make a very convincing case. And, this um, excitement is, uh, <laughs> is unusual. I did not expect this today. I'll be honest. And I'm always, I'm always, you know, kind of I'm always in the market for some optimism. So I'm really glad. I, I guess what I meant was that the U.S. was working within certain limits. They were working within what's bureaucratically possible for them, and and, and I, I agree with you. I think they got a lot done in on that space, you know, because we do know that the U.S. bureaucracy can be inflexible and complicated, and getting different kind of U.S. government agencies to cooperate, you know, kind of smoothly can be a challenge. So I, I think I think there was a lot done on that count. I think certain things that arguably would have kind of changed the relationship are politically off the table and therefore they, you know, therefore didn't really kind of enter into the conversation, which would include, for example, fundamentally 
you're changing or expanding Agoa, I agree with you that is that conversation still has to take place. To really kind of change the landscape in terms of private sector lending and the way that bondholders deal with debt restructuring, I think there's maybe some interesting kind of green shoots emerging there, but you know, that wasn't particularly kind of like, you know, part of the summit's work. Another thing that I thought would really change the scene would be changing the terms of African migration and, and kind of student access, which again, I think isn't politically feasible for, you know, kind of for Biden at the moment. So that was what I meant, is that those kind of broad parameters of the relationship, I think, stand as they were, as they did before. But as I say, within that space, I, I agree with you. Like, I think they really got a lot done. Like, the, you know, kind of the, like, you know, in, in reflecting on it and as all of it kind of got listed, you know, kind of like over the weekend and so on, it, it also struck me that, yeah, they actually got a lot more done than I expected them to get done. And Kovo, that's the thing. It was like, so there was no signature Biden initiative in Africa. There was no Power Africa. There was no PEPFAR, right? There was no one big thing. But I've been saying that the cumulative impact of all of the things that were, the initiatives that were introduced could end up having like a really big, for example, you know, Eric, the U.S. doesn't do that thing. It doesn't do the, over the next three years, we're going to do 20 billion or 50 billion, blah, blah, blah. I think, you know, Japan came out with 30. This year's forecast was 45, or depending on who's counting, 45 or 55 billion. And so the U.S. coming out and announced it, oh, over the next three years, we're going to do 55 billion. First of all, that's ridiculous, right? We know that the U.S. government doesn't work like that. What do we see every December in the U.S.? There is some sort of fight in Congress over lifting the debt ceiling or shutting down the government, right? So every single year you have this. So the U.S. government doesn't operate in three-year trenches. The Chinese government does that. They do five-year plans, right? So the U.S. coming and announcing $55 billion, I don't think the impact was great. I see expected on everybody. But it answers a question. You know, if the Chinese in three years are like, oh, we're going to do $45 billion, the U.S. is like, we're doing $55 billion. It answers the question. For me, what it says is that the U.S., understands that this space is competitive and they're coming, they're trying to compete. Now, the question has always been, what are the details behind this? You know, we, we didn't see any details, but I'm not really worried about that. And I will tell you why. So here in the United States, at least in the industry I work in, there is a whole industry whose responsibility, the only reason it exists is to hold the U.S. government accountable for commitments it makes and for things it says. So you say 55 billion, at least I know that at my institution, the Center for Global Development, our Africa initiative is literally going to launch a program to track the commitments over the next three years and see if the U.S. keeps that. I don't know if there's a similar thing happening in China. And among us, we know everyone repackages. EU repackages, China repackages, Japan repackages. And then the next critique would be, well, most of that money is actually going to stay here in the U.S. anyway with the belt with bandits. You know, that's, that's a lot of truth to that. But I would counter to say, look, they all do this. As Minister of Works, I did a lot of infrastructure projects with the Japanese. And guess what? With JICA, when JICA finances a project, the procurement for contractor, procurement for supervising engineer, all of that occurs in Japan. So we get Katahira as the supervising consultant. We got Dai Nippon as the contractor. There's always Japanese firms that are doing the work. So they all do that. And that's terrible. We wish some of that money actually came to local firms. But I think what stands out about the United States is something we need to keep in mind is that U.S. engagement, let's assume, for example, $20 billion in health over the next three. If you were to extract $20 billion of spending 
out of Africa's health, we will measure that impact in lives lost and economies ruined. I mean, we've already seen what an outbreak can do to an economy. We're looking at China, but we're looking at what happened to the global economy over the last. So I think there are certain things that the U.S. does really well, and those are soft issues. I've come to start thinking about the U.S. and China as hardware and software of the same machine. And you need both for the machine to work properly. There is no point in having healthy people who cannot work. But there's no point in having incredible infrastructure when your people are not healthy, when your people are not trained, when your people are not educated. So we need a significant investment in human capital, but we need significant investment in physical capital. And over the last two decades, there has emerged a pattern of the Chinese doing the hardware really, really well and the Americans doing the software really, really well. Now, we hope that we begin to do some of each, right? And we're seeing, at least on the U.S. side, it looks like they're taking a really, really big bet on digital infrastructure. That is good. We're also seeing that the nature of Chinese spending on infrastructure is changing. We're seeing more PPPs. We're seeing more stringent criteria in selecting of infrastructure projects. That's not a bad thing, ultimately, for both China so that it gets repaid its loans, but for African suit who want more value for money. So maybe, you know, it's been a very difficult couple of years. And so maybe I'm slightly more hopeful than I used to be. But I think, you know, both with China and the, the United States, I have spent the last three years, four years here in Washington trying to convince or explain to Western audiences why China's presence in Africa isn't going away and why it is desirable for us as Africans that they, for 20 years, abandoned hard infrastructure and somehow expected us to grow our economies. The Chinese have come and answered that question. But China's engagement in Africa is not all-encompassing. There are certain things that the Chinese don't do as well as their Western counterparts do. And what remains then is African government's ability to be able to create a balance that works for them in how they engage both parties. So that's why I was optimistic with the way things went, you know, so let's shift gears, Jude, away from what happened in the U.S. And again, we want to look back on 2022 in Africa, in the China-Africa relationship more broadly. What I'd like to do is have Kobus and I share some of our reflections on the year and then get your take on it. So for me, one of the key takeaways from this year was the acceleration of the trend that China is disengaging from Africa economically and relying on the continent more politically. Now, a lot of people may find this to be a very surprising statement because they see the total trade relationship growing. So last year, there was $254 billion in two-way trade. This year, it's expected to top $300 billion. So people say, well, how is it possible then that China's pulling away if the trade numbers are going up? The problem is when you look at the absolute numbers, you're not looking at the relative share of China's total global trade. And in that case, China's total global trade is growing much faster than trade with Africa. So in that sense, China-Africa trade is either flat or declining. And so in part, we've seen this in the oil sector, where 15 years ago, when you first joined us on this podcast all those years ago, China sourced a third of its oil from Africa. Today, that number is down to 10.3%. And the fact is that the Chinese can buy oil, mineral, and timber now in larger quantities, in larger scale from other parts of the world on the Belt and Road, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Brazil, and whatnot. Africa just doesn't have the scale in many respects 
other than strategic resources in the Democratic Republic of Congo and now increasingly in Zimbabwe with lithium. Talk to us a little bit about what you think about the China-Africa trade relationship looking back on 2022. I guess what stands out for me comes out of 2021 and comes and bleeds into 2022. One was this question of some of the big flagship projects not finding an uptake from China, right? Just the money wasn't there. The, the Chinese weren't willing to provide that. But more importantly, as you noted that, I mean, Africans may not want to hear this, but first, we haven't really been a very big part of the Chinese economy, right? I mean, we were important, but we weren't that big. And now, you know, with this diversity in options to the Chinese of getting things that they would ordinarily get from Africa, I agree with your point that, you know, what the continent has to leverage in its relationship with China now has to be that block of votes in international fora. So that's one thing that stands out this year. The second is sort of the change in nature, though. You know, the Chinese promised green lanes for African exports. And this year, after a lot of back and forth, we saw Kenyan avocado get access to the Chinese market. But more importantly, we saw that China signed a an agreement with Ethiopia allowing more than 1,500 products tariff-free into the Chinese market, sort of a, something like Agoa, but for Ethiopia. I think we're going to see more of that. I think that's the beginning of a trend. Now, obviously, a lot of the goods and products on that list will hit things that are not currently produced in Ethiopia, right? I mean, we're talking heavy machines and stuff like that. But, you know, there's still things there that the Ethiopians themselves could produce or that investors could produce in Ethiopia and have access to the Chinese market. I think there's that. I think another thing that stands out about this relationship is there is no question now that when African governments think of their partners, that the relationship have withstood the critique of debt trap diplomacy. I think to a large extent, you know, that relationship has, uh, you know, Africans have continued a relationship with China uh, in spite of that. However, there is something here, you know, China for the first time joined a credit committee, even though, uh, you know, China is not a part of the, the Paris Club. We saw that in the case of Zambia. And whether China likes it or not, it, it actually set a precedent. So there's something there to look forward to because this morning, I don't know if you guys have seen, but there's a, a report now in Reuters that Ghana has defaulted on its international loans, that they're going to suspend payments, which is you know, effectively a default. And so maybe Ghana is not the only country. And, and we're going to see if things do not improve, we're going to see other African countries. And, and the more that happens, the more important China becomes for the continent. Zambia is asking for a haircut of up to $8 billion. A significant portion of that haircut will be taken by the Chinese. And so going forward, you know, it's going to be important to see how China responds to this. But We've seen a reluctant China enter into the negotiations around debt in a multilateral forum when they prefer to do it in a bilateral way. So these are things that, that has, uh, you know, sort of stood out to me over the last year. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's a great example of like little things happening in 2022 that's going to possibly kind of like snowball later on. Like one being that there was the announcement also, I think, late last week that China is apparently going to be joining some kind of sovereign debt roundtable, like Kristalina Georgieva of the IMF announced that. 
you know, so what that's going to be is going to be very interesting. Like I just saw kind of like kind of below the me- below the surface mentions of, you know, kind of of some of these kind of like behind the scenes wranglings. And apparently one of the reasons why China was quite dragging its feet on joining some of these things, some of these initiatives has, be- has included the treatment for multilateral development banks and for private sector lenders, you know, kind of in the dealing with bilateral debt and the role of multilateral development banks and of private sector lenders they're very large and very kind of unexamined, you know, kind of like in like through all of the through all of the last two or three years, kind of like worth of discussion about what we should do with all of these countries who are slowly, slowly sliding into debt distress. Like the role of those actors and the very, very significant roles of those actors have, have to a certain extent been left off the table. Like it, it seems like we're moving towards some kind of like moving forward to deal with debt. Like, you know, kind of the, there's no other way. Like we, like the Paris Club, the private sector, the Chinese, like they're all going to have to do something and what that something is we're slowly starting to see the first kind of inkling of you know kind of as these different countries go through these processes so yeah i agree with you it it, it looks like like china's position is going to be shifting on some of these things we don't know really in which direction but it looks very interesting just a little more information on the situation in Ghana. China is listed as one of the major external creditors. So that is among the creditors that the Ghanaian government now will not be servicing what they're calling on an interim emergency basis. So temporary. But Wall Street and the street and the city in London don't care what the rhetoric is. Either you pay on time or you don't pay on time. And they're going to call it a default. And so now the problem is in Kenya with the downgrade from Fitch and with the default in... Ghana, the cost of borrowing is going to go up even more. And there is this uh, already this thing about an African risk premium, which is that Africans unfairly pay more to borrow money than other developing regions. And it seems, Jude, that that is not going to get any better now with these these defaults. And it's probably going to be more of this coming next year, unfortunately, in a number of other countries. You know how you use their show to, you use their last show to think about, you know, what is the virgin going to the new year? It's basically how a region get painted with a broad, broad brush so that something happening in one economy in that region sort of affects everybody Just, else. It all gets flattened into one simple thing that's that's basically what we're going to see you know that and every time the ghana story gets stalled the zambia story is going to get tied to it and all of a sudden it begins to build a narrative of an africa where we're seeing you know sort of you know cascading defaults whether that's happening or not the risk ghana had already been sort of effectively shut out of international capital markets so you know this simply adds a fuel to that fire but going into next year I think it's about 20 or 19 economies on the continent that are at or close to debt distress. So this is something to watch, debt. And every single time we talk about debt, China is going to be very prominent in that because it is the continent's largest bilateral creditor. And so, you know, to Kobus's point, that the Chinese position is going to increasingly become untenable. There, there has to be, and for right now, the, the common framework isn't really working. And part of the reason is simply because, you know, the common framework requires you know, creditors to make uh, significant concessions. But what creditors are we talking about? I mean, it's largely China, right? And so it's, it's, it's like everyone is requesting the Chinese to take you know, very, very big ha- haircuts. I, I don't know. I'm going to disagree with you there because what the data tells us is that the Chinese are about 18% of total African debt, twice as much as owned to the Eurobond creditors. We found out last week that U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is going to be going to Africa 
on January 17th to the 28th. She's going to go to Senegal, Zambia, and South Africa. And you can bet for sure that at every stop along the way, she's going to focus attention on the Chinese. What she's not going to say is what her own government has not done to Wall Street, she, who has not done to BlackRock, what is not done to the mutual funds and the hedge funds to loosen the fiduciary laws so that they can actually negotiate. Right now, they can't really negotiate. But the reality is, and I'm not trying to take a Chinese position here, is that the bulk of Chinese debt is concentrated in about five countries. Okay, so when we talk about the flattening of Africa, it just feels disingenuous that the Americans or other critics of China will sit there and clutch their pearls and say it's the Chinese fault when, in fact, the euro bonds and the private creditors in many ways are much more insidious. This is what we heard in our last show from the China Africa Research Initiative paper that was done on Sri Lanka that the payments to Habendota were actually okay from the government. It was the servicing of the euro bond debt that forced the hand of the Sri Lankan government. And that's what we're seeing in so many African countries, one after another, is that the Eurobond guys are not budging at all. We've seen some flexibility from the Chinese. So there's two things here. One is, when you think of, you're right, when you think about the common framework, then it is all developing countries, right, who are in, in debt. And for them, across the developing world, China is a big player. I was just looking at a report yesterday in Bloomberg that put African debt at something around $650 billion or thereabouts. And China was responsible, according to that report, for about 12% of that, right? So if China is responsible for 12% of that, then, you know, what about, the, you know, the other 88, right? However, for a long time, I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing for African governments when you think about it, Eric. The kinds of needs that African governments have cannot be met by any bilateral actor or the multilateral development system. African governments need access to an ability to tap into international capital markets. However, you know, like you're saying, some of this stuff isn't, you know, at least for some of the wealth managers, it is internal. Yeah, there are regulations, you know, from city SEC or the US Treasury on what they can and cannot do, but also, you know, for some hedge funds, for some pension funds, they have internal rules on what they can and cannot do. So this has always been a problem of how in the past when we had debt resolutions, because most of the lenders and creditors were bilateral and multilateral, it was easy to meet in Paris, have a Paris club meeting and be able to resolve it. But the more attractive African bonds became and the lower interest rates in the developed world meant that there was an appetite for high yielding African bonds. And that's why the private sector came after it. So now, if Africa is cut off from that at exactly the same time what we've seen, at least since 2016, significant decline in availability of Chinese funding for infrastructure, that has an implication on Africa's ability to finance its lease going forward. So my hope is, you know, there will be some sort of reasonable way to be able to resolve this. I mean, that we will get at worst, no, at best, we'll get the Argentina treatment. I mean, how many times have Argentina been to this trout and they're still allowed to come there again and again? But I don't know if the same amount of grace that is extended to Argentina either exists or will be extended to us in Africa. And you're right that this is where the American government could actually tip the scales a bit on behalf of his African partner. But I don't believe that Joe Biden is going to force the financial services industry to make any concession because that's bad for his domestic political future. 
Well, the thing is, I think we still really need to unpack what kind of action would be needed, like kind of like what those measures actually look like, and you know, kind of who. If it means Wall Street's losing money, then that's not going to be good for them. But that's exactly the question: is like how much money would they be losing? Like which particular rules would be uh, would be affected? The, like this, this is the tracking this debt discussion over the last few years has been a real kind of media studies education for me in the sense of how certain debates are just shaped in certain directions. Because if you listen to someone like Janet Yellen, you would never realize that there is even a private sector debt problem in relation to Africa. Like if you listen to her, the only problem on the table is Africa. I mean, the only problem on the table is China. I mean, like if you just track her and many other US officials and like people from the World Bank and, and so on, like it would seem that, you know, it really is an education in terms of how certain things are being discussed and other things are just not being discussed, you know? So in that sense, like I feel like we haven't even done the intellectual work of thinking what those kind of reforms would actually look like. You know, before even kind of framing it in terms of a fight between Wall Street and, you know, kind of and DC, it's like, you know, is that even what we're talking about? We don't know, because the, the discussion itself has been so kind of weirdly shadow banned. I think the Cobus is point. Part of the reason why countries have been afraid to enter the global, the, the common framework is this very point. They are afraid that if they were to enter the common framework, they would be completely effectively shut out of international capital markets. So the private holders of debt have significant influence here. And for us to just concentrate our attention on China and China and China just seems a bit much, right? Like it, it just seems like if what is 15 or 12 percent, let's be generous and say, you know, 20%. If China is responsible for 20%, why are we not talking about the 80%? Like the yeah. conversation is... Ain't no, but that's it. If we're not talking about, if we're not talking about uh, the bulk of it, I simply focused on this one. For an actor who seems, whether reluctantly or not, willing to have a conversation with his debtors and find some sort of solution there. So I think this is a piece that is missing. Like, you know, Kobus, you're right, from this conversation about you know, let's talk about the other 80% or 85%. Well, let's move on to another topic. We want to let you go with your day, but I've got a couple more issues I want to get your take on. This year was a year that the climate moved to the front of the agenda. We saw some of the worst floods in history in Nigeria. Uh, dozens died in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa that brought the port of Durban to a halt. We have starvation now in northern Kenya, drought in much of southern Africa. The African continent as a whole generates about 3.8% of global emissions, but yet is suffering disproportionately. At the COP27 summit that took place in Egypt earlier this year, a lot of the countries put their cards on the table, China among them, and said, nope, we're not going to pay for a loss and damage fund. We will support you, but we're not paying up. And that uh, forced, uh, again, a moment of truth that what side is China on in this? I wrote a column which basically said, Africa and African countries, you're on your own. You got to figure this out on your own. You're not getting money from the North. You're not going to get money from the Chinese. I don't believe you're going to get money from the Europeans. And I don't think it's politically feasible for Americans to ship over billions of dollars for a loss and damage fund. That's my take on it. I'd be interested to get your take on the climate issue as it relates to Africa, China, and the rest of the world. Sure. So one of the things that I want to do going forward, when I arrived here in this space to talk about China and Africa, the rhetoric was so just anti-China and everything that for a long time, I, I had to spend a significant amount of time 
just simply clarifying and educating people on why this relationship exists the way it does. But I think the time has come now for us to begin to apply a similar lens in how we think and talk about China in Africa. What do I mean by that? When the Chinese first arrived on the continent, the China's GDP was about a tenth of the U.S. Uh, GDP. But today, every now and then, there's a story that comes out and says, like, you know, by 2035, China will surpass the United States as the largest economy in the world. China is too big an actor for us to continue to treat as if it is just a mere developing country. China is now, uh, and historically, yeah, China is still low. China is still lower than its uh, other industrialized counterparts, but China is a significant contributor to emissions, right? And so, how do we have this conversation with China and India? Yeah, there is a conversation between us and the global north, but there's also a conversation between us and China. So on that, I think, you know, I am one of the people who, who believes that what happened at COP27, there's some hope. Not much, but a little bit. You know, at the first conference on climate, the uh, Framework Convention on Climate in 1992, there were two principles. One was that there was a collective but differentiated responsibility for the crisis. So some were more responsible than others. And the second was that the polluters would pay. It didn't say, you know, when you started polluting, the people who polluted the most would pay. For a long time, it's been almost impossible to get the West to agree to the second principle. In fact, going into the meeting, both France Timmermans and John Kerry, the European and American envoys on climate, refused to even bring up loss and damage. That at the end of the day, there was an acknowledgement and a fund, even though there's no details about it, I think is a triumph for small countries, is a triumph for activists and people who've been pushing that for a long time. But you were right. You know, 30% of droughts globally occur in Africa. The flooding we saw wasn't just Nigeria. It was in Chad. It was parts of Gambia and like you noted in South Africa. But then we have these massive droughts in Somalia in parts of Kenya, like you noted, in parts of Ethiopia, for the fifth season, the rains have failed. We've seen, well, what, what are we saying now? Over, I mean, the worst drought we've seen in 30 years. So Africa is feeling the brunt of the climate problem. And we have not seen a significant uptick in how much is available in climate financing. So there is this big argument happening now about the multilateral system, a development system, the World Bank, the, the regional development banks, were created for a different time. But that there are new threats now and new things are happening. So they, they ought to be reshaped. And most of that reshaping is supposed to happen around climate. That is a conversation. So Jenny Yellen, the, the U.S. Secretary of Treasury, was at the Center for Global Development. And she made this argument that the U.S. is going to push for a reform of the international financial system, development financial system, the gear toward more active road in that. I don't know what, what that looks like. There is a proposal on the table. It's called the Bridgetown proposal or something is from Barbados, the, their president. She's president, right? Prime minister, I think. Yeah. She's, she's amazing. That, that's her proposal. But that proposal seems really targeted at middle-income countries. And so Africans themselves will have to put something on the table. And for me, this is my frustration, that we're always reacting to other people's proposals. We're always reacting to other people's initiatives. And it's not as if you know, monopoly on the repository of ideas in the West or elsewhere. I think we ought to be more assertive and be able to put something on the table and force others to react to it. So the climate issue definitely going into the next year would be a huge thing and it will continue to have that outsized impact on African lives and livelihoods. Yeah, and Kobus, this is a point that you've made on a number of occasions that maybe the Pacific Island countries that often operate as a bloc should coordinate with Africa because both face in many ways existential threats. And you, you've pointed out that there are 
are learnings from the South that many African countries can take in how to manage the climate issue. Yeah, and I mean, particularly how to manage it politically, internationally. You know, as Jude said, like like Africa has been this taker of norms and taker of initiatives, but you know, at the same time, we're seeing the the small island developing states essentially reshape the global climate dialogue, you know, kind of through things like loss and damage. So that kind of like thought leadership and, you know, just like intellectual leadership on what kind of the climate should look like, that should be coming from Africa. But I think to a certain extent, again, this is, you know, like small developments this year, I think could play out in large developments in the future. There was this very interesting moment in COP27 where the president of Namibia, Haga Gangob, was essentially said that, look, in this discussion the West are criminals. And it was this very interesting moment. And I mean, people have said this in the past, of course, you know, um, I mean, that that is where the polluter-based principle comes in. But what is interesting for me is that now, you know, obviously, Juju, as you pointed out, China is a big developing country and, you know, so big that we we can't just think of it as, a, as you said, a, a mere developing country. I think what it is actually is a, is a new kind of world power, which is a developing superpower. And we're seeing, you know, kind of we're seeing where a country can be both a superpower and still developing. And I think both of those things are true for China. And, you know, kind of the other thing that one needs to point out in relation to climate and is that compared to Western countries, China is so far ahead in terms of the, the amount of renewables it puts in that one has to start talking about, and, and at the same time, China is also still the world's biggest carbon emitter. But that status of being the, the world's biggest carbon emitter has to be seen again in this kind of complex con context of China being both a developing country and still also the biggest builder of, of renewables. The West, very much not the biggest builder of renewables. You know, and, and what we saw in 2022 was Western countries leaning into this ancient technology, you know, like shipping enormous amounts of natural gas, you know, kind of, an, and, and Europe kind of essentially shivering, shivering in the cold because they never got around to replacing natural gas with anything else. So you have this kind of situation where these countries appeal to global influence is based on their kind of historical record of development. But the historical record of development lies so far in the past that it's not really in living memory. So one has to then ask the shouldn't countries where, you know, development lies within living memory and countries that have some kind of forward facing, you know, kind of like idea about what they're actually going to be doing about climate the way that China does, you know, kind of imperfect as that is, shouldn't they then have a much, much bigger influence in the global development conversations? than these countries who can't remember development and who haven't done anything new in updating their development in decades and decades. You know, so it's then, you know, like it, it was this very interesting moment where there was this kind of fracturing where you could see, oh, this is the limits of Western soft power. You know, Western soft power isn't infinite. That was a, a very like interesting little kind of like indication that, that COP27 brought to me. Well, let's close our discussion very close to where we started it. I hate to keep coming back to the U.S. because I think the China-Africa relationship and Africa's foreign policy does extend beyond the U.S., but the fact is that the State Department last week opened up what they call a China House, and this is a facility that is going to house all of the interagency experts on China, but it is in many ways a hallmark of the Cold War with the Soviets because back then they had a Russia House. And what it points to is the escalation of U.S. tensions with China, that it's not going to get better or softer or warmer in 2023. In fact, all indications point that the fight is only going to get worse. The Chinese government itself seems to be reorienting its foreign policy team 
around a duel with the United States as well. So, Jude, when you talk to your friends back in Liberia and other senior-level stakeholders across the continent, they say, Jude, you are in Washington. You follow these things very closely. What should we as Africans and African policymakers do to better manage this brewing feud between the United States and China? Even though Africans have said over and over again they don't want to be caught in the middle, they may not have a choice at the end of the day. So what advice do you have for African policymakers about how to manage the increasingly fractious international arena that we're going into? All of the African leaders who've had a chance to comment on this will say the same thing, that, you know, we don't want to be caught in between. And the Americans will say, well, we're not forcing them to make choices. But there's the CHIP Act, right? There's the IRA. In fact, when, when Macron came to visit... And, and just the IRA for those is the not the Irish Republican Army, but it's the Inflation Reduction Act. There you go. So when, when the French President Macron came to visit, as soon as he landed, you know, in his availability with the press, he said that American policy, domestic policy, is beginning to fracture the West, right? So this is a Western ally talking about how U.S. policy targeted toward China is beginning to have an impact on them, making them basically subservient to U.S. policy and having to realign themselves with America. Now, if the Europeans are saying this, that whether the Americans intended it or not, the effective answers that they, they have to make a choice. You know, for example, at one point, the Netherlands was indicating it would still continue to supply chips to China, but the Netherlands and Japan have fallen in line with the Americans. So the, the Americans don't necessarily have to come to Africa and give us, you know, clear ultimatum and say, hey, you choose that, you choose that. Simply in a domestic policy, we will be forced to make choices. For example, there is a bill now, I mean, there's no chance that it actually becomes law, but it's still a bill that would punish certain African actors for doing business with Russia. And, you know, Mackie Sal spoke against it. SADC has come out against it. And African ambassadors in the U.S. have come out against it. But that is what is coming. So for me, there are two things here. One is we already have the building blocks of what a response should look like. Our strength is going to be in the collective. Build the AFCFTA increase the amount of trade that we do. The second thing is, you know, you have to force the hand of the Americans or the Europeans. You know, for example, it makes no sense for us to continue to export all of our minerals and process none of it at home. We need some access to the value chain of EVs. And so one of the things that I say to people as a former works minister is that when you design the grid, one of the things we look for are large off-takers because they end up subsidizes smaller ones. You're looking for mines, you're looking for factories, you're looking for massive, you know, um, hospitals, industrial smelters. Those things use so much bulk power that they're able to subsidize households. So here is an opportunity for us to be able to build the energy infrastructure we need while at least adding value to some of our exports. If we don't begin to take those steps, we are increasingly going to be caught in a situation where the Americans are going to continue to say in rhetoric, we're not forcing you to make a choice, but in policy, forcing us to make a choice. And we need options. And so I think one, original trade, increasing trade with each other, but also more trade with India, more trade with the Gulf region, the Middle East. ASEAN. We want more trade with ASEAN. I want. We've, yeah. we've seen African governments making a lot of trips to Vietnam. There are opportunities there. But more, more I think the last time Lula was in office, there was a push toward a stronger relationship between Brazil and Africa. That sort of, you know, 
waned and sort of shriveled. But this is something, it doesn't have to be Lula who pushes it. African governments themselves can begin to push it so that there is a resilience built into your trade relationships and it allows you to be able to weather the, the, coming, the, the, the coming storm. But that storm is coming. That storm is coming. And one of the things that we've been talking about all year is for African governments and stakeholders and policymakers and corporates to improve their China literacy. Unfortunately, it has not improved much over the past 20 years. But then there's the other issue of you talked about, which is area studies. So beyond China to understand and have knowledge about ASEAN, Mercosur, and these other regional trade blocks that offer a lot of opportunity and potentially a way out of dependence on the U.S. and China and avoid getting caught in the middle of it. Jude, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Thank you for a wonderful year of all the contributions that you've made to this discussion. We really appreciate it. Jude Moore is a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C., and a key thinker on African affairs. Jude, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing in 2023, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter at uh, Jude underscore Moore. And you can find me at the Center for Global Development is cgdev.org. Are you preparing for an alternate Twitter uh, profile somewhere on uh, Mastodon or The Post or <laughs> somewhere else in 2023? What a crazy thing that's been happening with this. I think, you know, I, I don't even understand what's happening here. I think, first of all, he overpaid for this. And now maybe he, it's almost like he's trying to crash and burn it. But you know what? Knows, but we'll see where it takes us. I'm on LinkedIn, though. Find me on LinkedIn. I will still put my stuff on LinkedIn. <laughs> After Twitter goes down, I'll be on LinkedIn. We'll put all the links to Twitter for now and everywhere else for Jude in our show notes below. Once again, Jude, thank you so much and Happy New Year and Merry Christmas to you and your family. All right. Thank you, Eric and Kobus. Same to you. Kobus, well, as usual, Jude has given us a lot to think about this year and he covered a lot of ground. And I, I love the fact that you can't pin him down. Do you know what I mean? Is he sometimes critical of the African side, sometimes critical of the American side, often critical of the European side, and increasingly critical of the Chinese side? And I think in many ways, the point that I thought was most salient was the fact that the China-Africa relationship now has matured to the point where the Chinese deserve the same level of scrutiny that Americans, Europeans, and other historical powers have gotten for a long time. So I thought that was really interesting. And it just I love talking to Judy because he always challenges our thinking. And I think he challenged a lot of our thinking on the U.S.-Africa summit, which is great. Uh, I think you and I were a little bit more negative about it than he was. And so it's always refreshing to get those alternative views on that. And it's just also fun to be able to talk to somebody who's been with us for all these years. Again, he was one of our first guests on the show many years ago. So we are now in our 13th year of this show, closing in on 720, 725 episodes. Can you believe it? You know, we started this thing back in 2010 with the idea that maybe we can do six months of this. And who, how much can you talk about when it comes to China, Africa, right? And clearly a lot. I mean, just this show today is evidence of how much more needs to be done. So just my final thought is that as we close out the year, we always want to give a big thank you to our listeners, to our supporters, to our funders, to our subscribers, and even to our haters. I'll be honest with you, the haters, as much as I don't like getting the, the negative feedback, it is very healthy and oftentimes buried in some of the weirdness that social media is. There's some really useful feedback that people give. So I do appreciate people taking the time to write when they disagree with us. 
And so just a huge thank you to everybody for your support over all these years. And also, you know, we took a big risk when we turned this into our full-time careers. So for Cobus, myself, and we now have a, a full team of people in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, uh, we're all grateful to everybody's support. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much to people who, who listen to us, who indulge us, who are going to make time for us. We so, so, so appreciate it. And it's just such a privilege to be able to be in this space, speak in this space, keep speaking about these issues, and, and we're going to try and keep doing it. So we're going to take a couple of weeks off just to catch our breath after more than 100 shows that we produced this year alone, Copus. <laughs> Can you, I mean, a hundred shows. So we're doing two a week now. Uh, one is the China Global South. The word compulsion might be <laughs> might be at play. <laughs> I know, it is a little bit. And here's the crazy part of this. So starting in January, when we come back, we are going to be launching a weekly video show on YouTube with Jeronima, with Nasreen Kamal, our Arabic editor, with Protus Onyenga, who is our climate editor, and we're going to get all of the team together once a week, and we're going to be on YouTube, and we're going to do video now. So we're going to do three shows a week starting in January. This is an obsession, Gobus. I'm not entirely sure this is healthy, to be honest with you. Yeah, so, so this is why we're taking a break, is to let the Botox settle. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes. you'll, see the, you'll see the horrible truth when we're actually on video. Oh, we have faces for radio. That is the problem. So, uh, But anyway, we hope that you'll join us on YouTube for our weekly show. And we're just going to get it started. We're just going to have these great conversations and, again, try to broaden the debate and to challenge each other in our thinking of this and hope that you will be able to join us for that. So we'll put links for that when it comes up. But uh, until then, we want to thank you for another year of listening to the show. We want to thank you for your support, and we want to wish you and your loved ones a very, very happy holidays. We'll see you in 2023. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at ProjetAfriqueChine.com and AfriqueChine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic. <laughs>